0: As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee." This is God's Word. Stranded. Stranded. It's hard to ignore the unfolding events in Afghanistan. Uh, I personally cannot imagine the horror and the heartbreak of seeing your homeland taken over an evil regime literally overnight. A Toronto man, a Canadian citizen, says he feels abandoned by Global Affairs Canada as he attempts to escape Afghanistan. He ended up there because of his ailing mother to tend to her, and he's a citizen of Canada, and the Taliban showed up to his home in uh, Kabul. And so after that, he rushed to the airport, but he couldn't get a flight out. And so here you see a scene of those who are stranded at the airport, right at the doorstep to freedom, but they cannot attain that freedom. And so I imagine he is wondering, will his nation, will his people, his fellow citizens, you and me, as Canadian citizens if you are, his government, his prime minister, will they come and rescue him? And we understand the word save in this context so easily. Will they come and save me? Now on one hand, our culture, I think there's something in our culture, our our collective ego, if you will, that likes to be the Savior. If we can... Be the one who has the resources and help and so forth and feel good about ourselves. There's something in us that enjoys being the savior. And and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I commend our nation for our willingness to welcome 20,000 refugees. And I hope sincerely that they have a better life here in Canada than they would under a Taliban regime. And of course, most importantly, I hope they come to know the most wonderful happiness, to know Jesus as their creator, as their savior. But how far are we willing to go to help? Even if you have a compassion, you find yourself with some compassion this morning, how far are you willing to go and actually live out and express that compassion to help, to save? To put it to an extreme sort of case, can you imagine if our prime minister who has said publicly that we'll welcome these 20,000 refugees, we'll do as much as we can, that he himself literally goes over to Afghanistan, he sits down face-to-face with uh, Hibatullah Akhundzada, and he negotiates his substitution, that he, one person, will stay there in trade for all those refugees and especially those refugees that are Canadian citizens that are seeking to escape. If our Prime Minister actually did that, that would blow the mind of the world and everyone would pause. Everyone, it it would be so difficult to compute and make sense of why would he do that? Why would he be willing to do that? Let's stretch it a bit further. What if He traded his firstborn child. But this is exactly what God has done. This is what God has done at the most important level of reality, meaning eternal reality, spiritual reality, because after this life, after history, after all kings and kingdoms, terrorist regimes and not and so forth, all pass away. There will be one lasting reign, one lasting king and kingdom, Jesus Christ. And what he has longed to do, what God the Father has longed to do through his son is to trade his son. What he has done and accomplished is to trade his son. His son has become a substitute for as many who would place faith in Jesus and be transferred over from an eternal kingdom of darkness, meaning hell, into God's wonderful, eternal kingdom of light, doing life in a new earth, a new creation, as he meant to be, and now eradicated of sin and disease and everything wrong with this world. That's why I've entitled today's message, It Should and Shouldn't Be Me. Because if we're to understand Jesus who he is his message his work his deeds and what he offers us we need to understand that it should be me instead of Jesus on the cross and it shouldn't be me receiving all the wonderful benefits and blessings that come with faith in Jesus union with Jesus and so my prayer for all of us is Lord deepen my awe at how you have substituted me because we see a proper response the roman centurion if you caught it in today's scene he's moving in the right direction and he has genuine awe we, we have sabotaged that word in our culture today i had this literal experience my buddy yo i had this hangnail it was so painful but i found these perfect pair of clippers that were like surgical and i just snipped that thing off and it was awesome <laughs> No, that is not awesome. That is not awesome. Awesome, awe, true awe, is a, the deepest reverent fear of something glorious and great. And so Lord, deepen my awe at how you have substituted me. And this, this very notion of substitution. Last week's sermon, Sam did a wonderful job introducing this. and. Really, this notion of Jesus' substitution, him taking our place, is a linchpin. If you remove that, then Jesus' mission entirely falls apart. All his healing, he still could have emotionally, physically healed people, psychologically, socially healed people. He could have promised, till he was blue in the face, a new world, a new creation, but all of that would be futile if he didn't substitute us. And so if you're investigating christianity you have to understand this point really wrap your mind and your thinking around this point and and that it would sink deep into your heart and if you're a christ follower you have to understand this central glorious truth of real biblical christianity of of the real gospel so i want to ask for the rest of our time together of the passage why is jesus's substitution indispensable and i couldn't think of a strong enough word for what i'm trying to portray there indispensable non-negotiable irreplaceable why is Jesus' substitution absolutely indispensable so the first thing i want you to think about with me is because it should be me on the cross not jesus this is a, a, a beautiful truth that will only grow bigger and more beautiful. And we should never become tired of this. If you find yourself tired of this truth as a Christian, then something is is off. And we can come back to this truth every day, every morning, and go to sleep at night on this truth, and it will be enough. It should be enough that because it should have been me On that cross not Jesus where do we see this so we pick up in verse 32 as they went out they found a man of Cyrene Simon by name they the soldiers compelled this man to carry his cross and so what you and I need to wake up to is that how much I am apart from Christ apart from Jesus the Christ outside of God's grace and we see this in the fact that Matthew intentionally includes this description of what happened, that they found a man whose name was Simon. He doesn't just stop there. No, he specifically says a man of Cyrene. Why? Because this is all intentionally a part of God's plan. This region of Cyrene was outside of proper Israel. It was a region of Gentiles, meaning non-Israeli people, non-Jewish people, people outside of God's covenant, outside of God's grace, apart from Christ. And so this man, Simon, he could have perhaps been a Jewish diaspora, but living in a Gentile region and, and to the Jews at home, he would be looked upon as somewhat second class, or perhaps he was full-on Gentile. We don't know, but the point is the same. Here is someone outside of God's original covenant people, outside of his grace because of where he's from, and we see a fulfilling of what Jesus invites us to. In Matthew, at least twice, he says, if you would come after me, you have to carry your own cross. Now, we know nothing of Simon's faith at this point, but nevertheless, here is a picture of what we're called to do as Christ followers. We're to carry the cross. Now, notice, it's all the way up to the point of Jesus actually being nailed to the cross. And again, here we see a picture that it's, It's not Simon who ultimately goes on the cross. It's Jesus. A word to, in our entire being, so much so that it feels like we're actually even physically carrying, that we are the one carrying the cross, but emotionally, mentally, in our will, just our identity, that it should be us. And we need to identify with Jesus. And that apart from him, you need to remember that, that the cross was Historians say the most heinous, egregious, torturous instrument of death in history. And the specific charge was of treason. Someone who's guilty of treason. And here we see Jesus taking on the sin of the world, of humanity, of all history, this very specific sin that we've all committed treason against God, that we've been born into treason against God. And we are to see ourselves originally, initially born into this world outside of God's grace. But we also need to understand how much we actually don't understand. And so we see, and where do I see this? We, as we pick up in verse 33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, Jesus, he would not drink it. Now, last week's sermon did a great job of bringing out the double curse that Jesus took upon himself. This place called Gotha was outside of the city, and according to God, those outside of the dwelling place of God's people, outside of the city, were cursed. And so Jesus here is taking on the identity of being cursed but it was a double curse because he was about to be hung on a tree. And so Peter himself identifies the cross that Jesus is nailed on as a tree and that Jesus took upon the curse of God for us. But you and I, if you say that to the average person on the street, that will either be offensive or there will be some kind of negative response to that. And in our culture, what we celebrate is wanting to protect our egos, wanting to protect our esteem. And we do anything and everything to cover up our shame, to cover up our guilt, through our performance, our accolades, our looks, our clothes, our outward appearance, our, our postal codes, whatever it may be, we try to cover up any sense of inadequacy. Call it what you will. But we're trying to cover up our shame, to numb our pain. And so we see Jesus here, being offered the soldiers knew how painful of a process this would be to slow death and not only the physical pain but the emotional psychological social pain being on display in this way and so they offer and all the commentators agree here that this gall is actually an opiate it's it's a painkiller but what does Jesus do he would not drink it why not because he's a hero Not because he's, he's you know, stronger than that. No, because he's here to face and bear and take on all the consequences of our sin. To not have any ounce of the consequences of sin numbed. And Jesus is in full confrontation, full, honest, with no denial, confrontation of our sin. We need to be able to see ourselves that it's actually Jesus. If he substituted us, what is logical is that we are the doubly cursed people. And that's why Jesus is experiencing this double curse because it actually should have been us. And yet we, like the soldiers, we would be, we're happy. And in fact, every day, somehow in some little way, we take little forms of this wine with gall to, to numb our pain, to cover ourselves up. And to convince ourselves, no, I am happy in life. And this life is enough because I'm pursuing happy, I'm going to make myself happy in some shape or form. But Jesus is demonstrating even literally that that wine is no true or ultimate comfort in suffering. And all wine is sour in the face of our sin and need of salvation before God. Now what we also need to understand then when we're trying to consider because it should be me we need to understand how much we don't understand who took our place. Matthew records this pivotal moment. In fact, I believe the most the most pivotal moment in all of history in these simple words and when they had crucified him. There's no sensationalism, there are no gory details. This is not Hollywood. It's just simple matter of fact, just stated that Jesus was crucified. It's like the simple words, I love you. Just three simple words, but, and the same person, say the object of your affection could be saying those words each and every day to you for the rest of your life. On the surface, they're just simple words, but the more they actually sink in, the more those simple words transform your life and just change your life and and that relationship becomes so wonderful and enjoyable. Similarly, and when they had crucified him. Matter of fact, see God, he, he just wants this simple fact that it should have been me. Jesus substituted me. And when we understand who it is, For this to sink in, these matter-of-fact words, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Imagine that Toronto man who's stuck in Afghanistan, that if our prime minister actually went and substituted himself. And, and, And for his whole life, he will be in wonder that this the highest man in Canada so to speak took his place and we're to experience that with each and every passing day of following Jesus to the just times infinity X infinity that this person who was crucified who took our place this is Jesus the king and the king of the Jews If you understand what that means, and you take it to its logical conclusion, it means the Messiah. Could have easily said, this is Jesus, the Messiah, which means this is Jesus, the Son of God. This is Jesus, God. This is Jesus, the creator of you and me and this entire universe. This is Jesus, the King of the universe. Why would he take your place, my place? We need to also understand as so we're thinking about it should be me and we see these people who pass by and they derided, wagging their heads. We need to, we need to understand how much you and I don't understand that it actually should have been me. That we, you and I are the guilty ones with not just a log in our eyes because this is a case of a log in one's eyes. You're trying to point out a speck in another person's eye. This is what's going on here. But it's not a log, but it's like a sequoia tree trunk sticking out of our eyes and as if we could point out any speck in Jesus' eye. And what's more profound is the very wording here is an exact fulfillment of God's plan from Psalm 22. We're not going to go into that, but I encourage you, if you have your own Bible, go read Psalm 22. You'll see here that God... Foresaw this even a thousand years prior, some thousand years prior, and that people would be wagging their heads at his son. And these people, they're in their ignorance. They don't understand that they are actually the guilty ones, that they actually have this sequoia tree trunk sticking out of their eye, not just the log. And look how, in their smugness, how self righteous they are you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Save yourself. You see, that's what we are in love with as a as a human being, as just humanity overall, from Adam to the last person that will live before Christ returns. What we are addicted to, what, what we are born into, what is broken in us is that we want to save ourselves. We want to save ourselves. We are in love with saving ourselves. And this is what they demand of Jesus. They want to see if you really are this Messiah. Show us that you know how to save yourself. And the dark, sad irony is that Jesus is not saving himself because of the very fact that he wants to save us, that we are the ones in need of saving. We try to save ourselves. That's why, just in our culture, self-help is a billion-dollar industry. That's why we do so much to try to pave our own pathway of salvation. Don't, don't get uh, caught up by and tripped by that religious-sounding word salvation. Basically, it could mean just trying to big yourself up, trying to make your mark in this life, that your name might have a legacy and be remembered forever, that you can be secure enough in whatever way, financially, socially, and on and on and on. We try to save ourselves. And so the chief priests and elders, the religious leaders, revealing, betraying how much they didn't understand God's plan of grace, they also chime in, So these people walking by, they continue to deride and derision. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. One of the most clear ways that we want to save ourselves is to eradicate as much suffering in our lives. And so even this past week, I came to learn for the first time a a movement. And and let me make it clear, I think it's a beautiful movement. It's a wonderful movement. I have lost my own loved ones to cancer. Uh, There's this movement, Stand Up to Cancer. And it's a beautiful movement. And through the pandemic, myself, I've come to more deeply appreciate God's heart for the sanctity of life. As we see uh, just enormous um, uh, extra numbers, uh, extra mortality because of this virus. But the sanctity of life, even in and of itself, has a huge asterisk next to it. It has to have a huge asterisk, a huge footnote. What is even more important than the sanctity of life is the sanctity of eternal life. Because as much sanctity of life that we have while we're on this earth, everyone's destiny is to die once and to face judgment. And so here we see the people that they demand of Jesus is basically, we'll believe in you if you can eradicate all your suffering and that you can give me that in as well. Put it in a bottle and give that to me. Come down from the cross. Eradicate the suffering you're going through. And so the religious leaders, they continue on and they riff on the same uh, melody here and And he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. That's the kind of God we want, isn't it? Even Christians, we fall into this trench on the side where there's the central narrow path of walking by grace and doing good works and overflowing good works by grace and staying in that sweet spot of just receiving God's love through Christ and from there overflowing everything good. That's, that's the narrow path, but we fall sometimes into the side trench of forgetting that we're saved by grace. And we begin to think that God owes us because we're doing all these things for Him. And the religious leaders, they, they were just revealing, betraying that that's their heart. We will believe in you if you can prove that God will reward you for who you are and eradicate your suffering. Then we'll believe you. And so, if we're going to see that it should be me on the cross, we have to become, we have to face utter stark honesty before the spiritual mirror and admit how works oriented my heart actually is, apart from God's grace. Now, another sad irony I I don't know if, if the religious leaders knew what they were saying but they were quoting Psalm 22 to the T and they were mocking Jesus with God's word that Jesus was the very word that Jesus was fulfilling in that moment in their ignorance to their ignorance. And they say, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now. If he desires him again, I encourage you go back to Psalm 22 on your own time and read it. And, We'll see the words that jesus cries from psalm 22 in a moment as he cries my god my god why have you forsaken me and a few lines later even in that desolation he says and yet the people of god trust you and so of course jesus was trusting god now what the religious leaders wanted was god on demand and they were Tempting Jesus, even on the cross. Let God deliver him now. I have to admit, I I love on-demand culture. Some aspects of it, when my mind is tired or whatnot, so nice. Or I really love, for example, personally, I love America's Got Talent. That show just just entertains me and it makes me happy in a in some for some reason. And but I, I never have my schedule never works out that I can watch it uh, when it's playing. Uh, in real time but on demand Wow you can just go at any time just on demand click 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 you can watch you can order you can just so much is on demand at work you're on demand especially living at home the the stereotypical experience now is because you're at home it's just work is 24 7 you're on demand and here the religious leaders wanted Jesus to show that he they could he could demand of the Father if Jesus desired it. See, that's the mistaken understanding of faith, that God is on demand, that if we obey, if we are pious, if we look a certain way, if we have a certain social status, then then God should be willing to do whatever we ask of him. But Jesus, he just rebuts that. He, 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 He makes it absolutely clear, No. That is not the religion that God calls us to. And what I will demonstrate with my life is that I will be in full submission to the very point of death, and I will submit to God's plan for me to substitute you, even if it is at the cost of facing to the the very extreme, the, the pains and consequences of taking on sin Humanity and taking on the curse. And so we need to understand how horribly you and I should actually be judged. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And darkness here for the scripture reader from Amos to the ten plagues, to other places in Scripture, this darkness, it represents the judgment of God. I love how William MacDonald, a brethren thinker and and commentator, he puts it very beautifully and succinctly. I'll just read it for you. It was during that time that he bore the indescribable curse of our sins. In those three hours were compressed the hell which we deserve, the wrath of God against all our transgressions. We see it only dimly. We simply cannot know what it meant for him to satisfy all God's righteous claims against sin. We only know that in those three hours, he paid the price, settled the debt, and finished the work necessary for man's redemption. And so Jesus... He cries out. I mean, just try to put yourself, think, think back to in your own life, your darkest, saddest moment of grief, anguish, anger, pain. And I remember times I, 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 I loudly cried. Even I've had my moments in life where I've screamed in those darkest moments. And so Jesus here times X infinity saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now what we also need to understand then is if we're going to see that it should be us instead of Jesus on the cross, we need to admit how much we love false gospels or counterfeit gospels. I see that here. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. Now, in fairness, I think maybe they just weren't up to, uh, you know, just their language skills and, and maybe it was loud. Who knows what was going on? But they misinterpreted what Jesus said. But nevertheless hearing something that sounded similar to Elijah, which we're familiar with, this man is calling Elijah. But I think there's meaning here. You see, Elijah, for God in his story, in his plan of redemption, he represents two things in one, two sides of of the same coin. First, he represents the, the summation of the prophets and the law. And that's why there's a prophecy that Elijah will come before the Messiah. And he'll pave the way. But what paves the way is God's law showing us that how much we are in judgment, how much we fall short, and we need God's grace. And we know that Jesus himself attests this Elijah did come. And so, on the beautiful side of it, the other side of the coin, John the Baptist was this Elijah, and now the road was being paved for God's grace to be made available to all who would place faith in Jesus. But, now to go back to the darker side of the coin, what these people, I think one thing they're saying is, let's see if our understanding of religion will save this man. Let's see if religion can save us. And so, especially, this is a word to all those, first, to my Christian brothers and sisters, let us never stray too far. Not, not, let's not stray at all from that central narrow path of walking by grace and good works and hard work and Christian discipline and, and pursuing excellence and, and overflowing with generosity and all those good things and the commands of God and, and, and so forth that were to obey, that it would overflow out of grace. Let us never stray from that. But here we see these people, I think, in some ways, having a misunderstanding of how they're to be saved by their own works, by fulfilling their own obedience to the law that this Elijah represents and wanting to see if Jesus could be saved by that as well. And so, we need to be able to see that it should be me It should be me, instead of that Jesus. As we look at this picture, this real picture just from this past week of all these refugees stranded and desperate to get on a plane to transfer them from a kingdom of darkness, an evil regime of the Taliban, over to any nation of some light. As you look at this picture, is your attitude... And I have to admit, I found this creeping up for a second, and I had to just decapitate it as quickly as possible. Is your attitude, thank God that's not me. Is there any kind of little ounce of attitude of that? Now, what I'm getting at is this. Now, while our culture enjoys being a savior, and, and is addicted to saving ourselves, Our culture shuns the personal need to be saved. And and, and we pity people who need to be saved. But look at another Psalm, Psalm 18, and this is also a Psalm speaking of Jesus and a prayer of Jesus. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock. Here's what I want you to notice, in whom I take refuge. The Christian truth is that every human being is a spiritual refugee. All of us are spiritual refugees. That's our identity. That's our starting identity. And we need to be able to see ourselves in that concrete picture of those refugees on the tarmac at an airport. Longing to be transferred to a kingdom of light. We need to spiritually see ourselves in their situation. The way we relate to God is that he is our refuge. We are refugees longing for a freedom and a good land that is found in Christ. We are trying to escape the kingdom of darkness that Satan created with his crew as Lucifer, and that Adam and Eve joined in their disobedience and rebellions against God, and we are all born into that kingdom of darkness apart from God's grace. And so we also need to think about then why is Jesus' substitution indispensable? Because it shouldn't be me receiving all the blessings. Of the resurrection life in Christ. It shouldn't be me. We don't deserve it. Where do we see this? To so continue on in verse 15, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit, because he had the power to yield up his own life. And behold, this is Matthew's marker, his highlighter for you and me. You'll see him using it at key places in his gospel. Now, pay attention to this. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rock split. God now shook the foundations of life, and Hebrews chapter 10 exp- uh, explains it most beautifully and succinctly. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, because the temple... Structurally, the way it was designed, there was the most inner holy of holies. Then there was a curtain, a thick curtain. And that's the curtain that was torn, which separated from the rest of the temple. And so Hebrews describes to enter that holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. So what is exactly going on in this tearing of the curtain is that God himself has torn that curtain that separates us from intimacy and love and being found in his grace, and being redeemed. And Hebrews explains in this beautiful, mystical way that that curtain was actually his flesh. It represented Christ's body being torn, being Maybe that's another reason why he was flogged. Jesus' body being torn, like the curtain being torn, so that we can enter. I'll just end it this way. Think of the person you most love, A, but are, are at odds with, B. Think of the person you most love, but are at odds with. There could be that one person, you could go back and just rewrite the story, rewrite the past, rewrite whatever it be, and you you long to be fully reconciled, to embrace, to feel the warmth of their heartbeat, to, to feel the warmth of their cheek, to have the right hand of fellowship with them, to be in perfect relationship with them once again. Who is that person? I want you to capture that and and then realize that that is God's heart times infinity for us. The tearing of this curtain, it shows us how much God desires us. Part of His glory is that He redeems to Himself His people to love, to be reconciled with. That's how much God loves you, loves me. That's how much he wants to bless us and bring us close. And to, for us to know the life after this life in eternity that he always meant in a beautiful new creation. And so that's why there's this little scene here. It seems odd at first, but not really, if you understand just how to break it down. The tombs were also opened when the earthquake happened. And so tomb doors were shaken open and were to end there. If you read it just quickly, it might seem that people were resurrected in that moment. And then they were waiting. (laughs) Because if you read it, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. No, it's not like they were raised and then they were waiting and then they all of a sudden played (laughs) peekaboo. No. No. I appreciate D. A. Carson's understanding, and I think it's correct. Says the tombs were also opened. Period. Big period. Hard stop. And then, after Jesus was resurrected, this is all one thought together. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. And there was this supernatural resurrection of people as a again a preview of the life that God wants and will give those who place faith in Jesus. I know there are more questions that come after that. Well, did they die again? Or were they just taken out? We're going to leave that for another day, okay? But just saying that to to also show that we are intellectually honest here at Trinity Grace Church, and we think deeply and, and, and sincerely and hard about god's word and so look at the response of the centurion even the centurion he was filled with awe and said this truly was the son of god he's headed in the right direction i hope this centurion went all the way and crossed that line of faith and in his heart united himself to christ Whether he did or not, you and I can today. Lord, deepen my awe at how you have substituted me.